Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 726 for the 15th of January, 2021. This week, sometimes it's possible to turn what should be a quick, easy task into a frustrating multi-day adventure. Usually this happens because of incomplete planning. And yes, I do have an example. In short circuits, troubleshooting a strange problem can take time. Hardware and software like to drop red herrings that confuse the troubleshooter, but everything makes perfect sense once you figure it out. Scammers are running in high gear to steal money based on false claims. These scams can fool anyone, but older people are often targeted. There are defenses against these dark arts. In spare parts, only on the website, taking a few minutes to run diagnostic tests on a schedule can give early warnings about hardware problems that would otherwise lead to unpleasant surprises. Firefox has added a new HTTPS-only mode that forces all website connections to be secure if the website supports security, and it warns you if the site doesn't. And 20 years ago, Macromedia acquired a layer to gain full access to its text editor for use in Dreamweaver, and Macromedia was acquired by Adobe five years later. I thought I'd do a short segment on updating a disk drive from one solid-state device to a larger one. It seemed like a quick, easy project that could be explained in just a few paragraphs with a couple of photos. It wasn't, and that explains the length of this piece. The computer I wanted to update is a Lenovo ThinkPad P50 that's several years old. I had opted for a 500GB SSD instead of a 1TB mechanical drive when I bought the machine. The goal was to get better performance without breaking the bank. Now, 1TB SSDs have become much more affordable, and the built-in half-TB SSD was becoming full. So it seemed like a good end-of-year project. I ordered a Samsung SSD 860 EVO 1TB 2.5-inch SATA 3 internal SSD. The price was $100. That's the same model I used several weeks earlier to upgrade my wife's computer from a half-terabyte mechanical drive to a 1-terabyte SSD. In mid-November, that drive cost $20 more. At that rate, maybe I could just wait until May and they'd pay me to take the drive. But I didn't want to wait until May. The ThinkPad P50 has one 2.5-inch drive bay and two M2 drive bays. It may or may not be possible to use all three. The documentation wasn't exactly clear. But I only wanted to use one because I simply planned to replace the 2.5-inch half-terabyte drive with a 1-terabyte 2.5-inch drive. I would clone the new drive in an external case, take the old drive out, put the new one in. Project complete, I thought. The new disk arrived on a Saturday in mid-December, so I started the clone process using the pro version of ESA's to-do Backup Home, which has a built-in clone option. 
If you don't have the pro version of ESUS to do backup, or you don't have any other application that will clone the drive, you can download a trial version of ESUS disk copy, and then, after using it, uninstall it. The cloning process took a little more than two hours, and I expected that to be the most consuming part of the process. Silly me. When the cloning process ended, the new drive had only a 500 gigabyte partition. Now, that was expected because, after all, it was a clone of the 500 gigabyte drive. The partition that would be drive C was followed by the recovery partition and then a half terabyte that was unallocated. That would be added to drive C. Now, it's not possible to extend a partition when the recovery partition is between the primary partition and the unallocated area. At least, it's not possible to do that with the Windows disk management tools. Third-party partition managers can easily move the recovery partition and then extend the boot drive into the unallocated part of the new disk. Fine, I thought, I'll go ahead and install the drive, make sure the system boots properly, and then deal with extending the partition later. Before removing the computer from its dock and opening the case, I marked all of the locations where cables were attached to the computer so I could replace them in the proper slots. Don't ask how I learned this lesson. Then I removed the computer from its dock, flipped it over, and used a shop vac to clean the dust from around the air inlets. The computer is hardly ever out of the dock, and I clean the dust whenever it is. Then I removed the screws that held the bottom in place. Lenovo makes that really easy. There are just a few screws, and once they've been loosened, it's easy to pry the bottom cover off to reveal the existing disc in the 2.5-inch disc bay. The only problem was there was no disc in the 2.5-inch disc bay. Instead, there was one M2 drive in one of the M2 bays. M2 is also known as Next Generation Form Factor, or NGFF, now, there's a period between the M and the 2, so there's some question about whether we should be saying M2 or M.2. The proper pronunciation apparently is M2, and that's what I'm using, but some people still think that little dot should be pronounced as M.2. Well, anyway, I wasn't expecting an M2 drive, but one might think that this wouldn't be a significant problem. Just remove the M2 unit, plug in the 2.5-inch drive, the bottom cover back on and boot the system. If one would think that, one would be wrong. For this model of computer, Lenovo requires a special bracket and a special cable for 2.5-inch drives, neither of which had been included with the computer because the computer used an M2 device. Should I have opened the case before ordering a 2.5-inch drive and expecting it to be the replacement? Well, of course I should. But did I have any reason to expect that Lenovo had installed an M2 device instead of a standard SSD? Well, no. M2 drives were a lot less common when I ordered this computer, and I really didn't have any good reason to expect that the newer technology would have been used instead of what was common at the time. But there it was, an empty 2.5-inch bay, no mounting bracket, and no data cable. The rubber bracket and cable are assembled from approximately $2.97 worth of materials, but they are no longer available from Lenovo and must be purchased from third-party vendors for about $25. And perhaps I should notice that the bracket and data cable increased the price of the disk by 25%. So I ordered one. 
It was scheduled to arrive just before Christmas, so this could still be an end-of-year project. Four days before Christmas, I had a cloned drive and the appropriate mounting hardware in hand. Mounting bracket, data cable, and a sticky label. Sticky label. What's that for? Presumably, it was intended to be attached to one side of the disk drive. But which side? There were no instructions. I couldn't find any information online. There were no YouTube videos that mentioned the sticker. So I made a command decision. Proceed without it. I forged ahead. How difficult could this be? Well, there were a few unexpected twists and turns. Placing the rubberized bracket around the disk was easy enough. In fact, I had done this with my wife's computer. Hers had a mechanical drive that just plugged into the motherboard. But for some reason, Lenovo designed the bay in the P50 so that the user needs a data cable. Attaching that to the disk was easy enough, too, but plugging the tiny connector into the appropriate tiny receptacle on the motherboard was a challenge for my fingers. Success. The disk was in place, and I restarted the computer so that I could confirm the new disk drive was working. I knew it wouldn't boot from the new drive because the old drive was still there, and I hadn't modified the boot sequence in the CMOS settings. The computer booted from the old drive, and the new drive was visible. So I could make sure which disk was which in the disk management console, I removed the M2 drive, modified the CMOS settings to boot from the new disk, and booted the computer. That worked as expected, but the recovery partition was still between the C drive and the unallocated space. I would have to move the recovery partition, but I figured that was a task for later. Hmm. I have this new boot drive that will be one full terabyte, and I unexpectedly have another half terabyte drive that could stay in place and be used for fast caching. Hey, I like that idea. So I put the M2 drive back in place. The computer booted to the new drive, but only after the boot screen showed an error, 2100 detection error on storage device M2, press escape to continue. The new disk was now drive C, but the old drive was no longer being detected. I decided to postpone solving the problem with the old M2 drive and proceed with the process of moving the recovery partition and expanding the logical drive C to consume all of the unallocated space on the new drive. Now, that turned out to be extremely easy with the free version of Aomi Partition Assistant. In about 15 minutes, I had downloaded the application, installed it, moved the recovery partition, expanded the C drive, and rebooted the computer to complete the process. ESUS also has a partition manager application. In fact, I tried it first, but I was unable to find a way to move the recovery partition. The AOMI application's instructions were clear, concise, and correct. While continuing to use the computer for normal operations, I found that somehow the Outlook OST file had become corrupt, but the PST file was fine. The OST is an offline data file, so it can be deleted. Outlook will then create a new file when it started. But Google Backup and Sync was throwing errors, and the local Google Drive folders permissions had been scrambled. Fixing the permissions issue was relatively easy, and everything was working by the end of the day. Well, everything except that the old M2 drive was still invisible. The computer then had a one terabyte boot disk. That fulfilled my original objective. Remember what that was? 
It's been so long that you may have forgotten my original objective was simply to replace a half terabyte drive with a one terabyte drive. So I could just remove the M2 drive, call it good, and continue. But now that I had an extra free SSD, I could use it as a fast cache drive for photo processing, video, or maybe even audio. A bit of additional effort might make the project more successful. So the next day I tried removing and reseating the M2 drive, and even disconnecting and reconnecting the CMOS battery. No change. Getting the old M2 drive to function as a cache drive seemed like it might be a bridge too far. So now the old M2 drive is no longer in the computer, the computer boots properly, the C drive is a one terabyte device, and I have a spare half terabyte M2 device sitting on a shelf. Although it would have been nice to have that old drive in the system, I couldn't justify spending any more time on the project. So I declare this mission complete. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, shortly after the 1st of January, I started having screen problems. The left screen on my computer would go black, and the only way to recover involved rebooting the computer. Was the computer's video subsystem failing? Would I have to replace one or both of the external monitors? Well, I didn't like either of those options, and keeping with my don't panic motto, thanks to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I didn't panic. Instead, I glanced at how it might be possible to replace the notebook computer's video subsystem and found that it's not possible. At least, it's not something a consumer could do. The video subsystem is soldered in. That means it would be a manufacturer's repair, and the computer, of course, is out of warranty, so it would be a very expensive manufacturer's repair. Is there a Thunderbolt video option? Well, if so, I didn't find one. So if the problem is the video subsystem, the solution would probably involve a new computer. I didn't like that idea, but I didn't panic. Might the problem be with one or both of the external monitors? Even an economy replacement would cost $250 or more for each monitor. Well, I didn't like that idea either, but I still didn't panic. Instead, I kept watching to see when the problem occurred. I had always been able to recover by rebooting the computer, but that seriously interrupts work that's in progress. If whatever was causing the problem failed entirely, I might be able to still work using a notebook computer and its built-in monitor. If the problem turned out to be a failing video subsystem, I could switch to the Surface 6 Pro tablet. It wouldn't be pretty, it wouldn't be convenient, but it would allow me to continue working. One common factor I noticed seemed to be Firefox. 
The problem always seemed to occur when I switched from one tab to another in Firefox, dragged or resized Firefox, or clicked on a Firefox menu option. So, maybe it's not the computer. Maybe it's not the video subsystem. Maybe it's not one or both of the monitors. Now, the monitors will be three years old in July, the computer five years old in August. The hardware is all out of warranty, but I just replaced the hard drive in the computer, so I'm expecting it to last for at least a few more years. The monitors should also operate reliably for at least a couple of more years. So, maybe the culprit is Firefox. I do prefer Firefox, but I could switch to Chrome, Opera, or even Microsoft's Edge browser. But first, I thought I'd investigate a bit further. I used Chrome to launch a DuckDuckGo session and searched for monitors blank when Firefox is running. And there were several reports dating back to 2016, but I wanted something a little more recent. After limiting the search to returns from just the past year, I found an item on windowsreport.com that seemed to describe the exact problem I've been seeing. The article was from mid-year 2020. So I continued not to panic. The article told me a black screen while using Mozilla Firefox is a common error and it still has no clear cause, and then promised to provide some possible solutions. Suggestion number one, upgrade to a better browser, they said, Opera. It noted the problem happens with most browsers, Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, or Internet Explorer included, but it appears it's with Mozilla Firefox users that the problem causes the most frustrations. Opera is a good browser, but I really do prefer Firefox, and I'd like to stick with it if I can. Suggestion number two was to look for viruses. Well, that's unlikely. I routinely scan for problems and rarely find anything, so I skipped that because the problem had persisted through several scans for viruses. Suggestion number three, uninstall recent software. That might be a good suggestion if I could link the problem to an installation of a new application, but I couldn't. Suggestion number four, disable hardware acceleration within Firefox. Now that seems like it should have been the first suggestion. Open the Firefox Options menu and scroll down in the General tab to the Performance section. Use Recommended Performance Settings will probably be selected, if so, deselected, and then Additional Options will be displayed. Deselect Use Hardware Acceleration when available. This is the most likely cause of the problem, but I also reduced the content process limit from 8 to 4. So does this work? Well. Maybe. I made the change on the 2nd of January, and so far I have not seen the problem again. Now that doesn't mean the cause really isn't something else that's currently hiding and will pop out again to bite me at the least opportune time. But it does mean that the problem now has a potential solution. What's the point of all this? Well, it's to follow the advice Douglas Adams gave us in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Don't panic. Always know where your towel is. And beer is essential to dealing with threats posed by construction of hyperspace bypasses that will destroy your planet. There's a
There's a lot of concern expressed for older people who may be targets for scams. And although it is true that scammers often target older people, recommendations for seniors may also apply to younger people. I'll admit I'm an old geezer. I've received calls that supposedly came from my grandson who had been arrested in another country, even though he was only six years old at the time. I have seen and ignored other scams, too. Older people like me are prime targets because age often reduces a person's ability to differentiate between truth and lies. But younger people can use guidelines for older people to protect themselves. Peter Lichtenberg, director of the Institute of Gerontology at Wayne State University in Michigan, notes that one out of every 20 older U.S. adults is a victim of financial exploitation, losing an average of $80,000 to $186,000 to the scam. Nearly half of these crimes are committed by someone the older adult knows and trusts, like a relative or a caregiver. Regardless of your age, taking a few minutes to answer 17 questions in a Wayne State assessment survey is worth your time. There's a link to that survey on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The survey reported that I am at the low end of average for risk. That's good, but I will pay increased attention to any financial information that comes my way. The quiz is from Lichtenberg's private company that seems to have some connection with Wayne State University. Although the assessment is open to anyone, the site cautions that it does not provide diagnosis or treatment recommendations. Assessment reports are not standalone, the site says, and they require the interpretation of the interviewer and possibly a relevant professional within their scope of practice and in the context of all information they have gathered about the client. Lichtenberg says financial health is linked directly to physical and mental health. Scammers, whether on websites, by email, or on the phone, are rapidly changing their scams. But the underlying ploy is the same whether they're hawking phony masks, useless cleaning supplies, ineffective cures, or the more recent claims to provide access to COVID immunization. Scammers know what frightens people, and they exploit it. The number one defense against scammers has been, is, and probably always will be, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. View any offer with suspicion, think critically, and don't fall for offers that expire at the end of the day. Regardless of your age, the Older Adult Nest Egg website is worth visiting because there are sections for family and friends and professionals, in addition to resources for older adults. You'll find a link to the Older Adult Nest Egg website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You won't find any scams in spare parts, just useful information. Head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Taking a few minutes to run diagnostic tests on a schedule can give early warnings about hardware problems that otherwise would be unpleasant surprises. Firefox has added a new HTTPS-only mode that forces all website connections to be secure if the website supports security, and it warns you if the site doesn't. And 20 years ago, Macromedia acquired a layer to gain full access to its text editor for use in Dreamweaver, and Macromedia itself was acquired by Adobe five years later. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. 
the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.